Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Yesterday we had two goods and a bad, so of course today we have to balance that out with a good and two bads. And so, Jim, we're brought to you today again by the Jordan Harbinger Show. Let's get to the good martini, which could end up being a very good martini but only if we get some bad martinis along the way. If that doesn't sound confusing enough, the situation is that the U.S. Senate balance is still up in the air. 48 Republicans, 48 Democrats heading into the new Senate. Republicans are ahead in Alaska and North Carolina. Uh, and we have two runoffs in Georgia. So there's the possibility of a 50-50 Senate to come in January, but we don't know that yet. But if it does, the Democrats aren't going to have enough votes to kill the filibuster or do some other nefarious things, thanks to Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin had said before the election that he would not vote to kill the filibuster, whether it's to pack the court or to do anything else. And he's still saying that. And he said it quite definitively Monday night to Brett Baer on the Fox News Channel. 50-50 means there's a tie. But if one senator does not vote on a Democratic side, there is no tie and there is no bill. So I commit to you tonight, and I commit to all of your viewers and everyone else that's watching. I want to lay those fears, I want to rest those fears for you right now, because when they talk about whether it be packing the courts or ending the filibuster, I will not vote to do that. I will not vote to pack the courts, I think, and I will not vote to end the filibuster. Brett, this system, the Senate was so unique body in the world. It was made to work together in a bipartisan way. And once you start breaking down those barriers, then you lose every, every reason that we are the institution that we are, the most deliberate body. So I want to ra- lay those fears to rest, that that won't happen because I will not be the 50th Democrat voting to end that uh, filibuster or to basically uh, blo- stack the court. So, Jim, uh, he didn't use the usual weasel words there of I can't think of anything or I don't foresee any circumstances where uh, I would be voting to uh, support a rule change and kill the filibuster. This seems pretty definitive on the part of Joe Manchin. So unless the Democrats do really, really well with these four outstanding Senate seats, uh, looks like the, the filibuster is going to survive for at least a couple years. Yeah, that wording really is pretty definitive and doesn't allow any wiggle room. Uh, Somebody had put it that one of the, you know, if you like the kind of ideas supported by Joe Manchin and you like the sort of ideas supported by Susan Collins, you're probably going to love this next Senate, regardless of how those two Georgia runoffs work out, because those two, probably the most conservative Democrat and probably the most liberal Republican, are going to be the decisive votes for a lot of this stuff. Uh, If you're a Republican, you'd still rather have those two Georgia Senate seats. It probably does make a significant difference if, uh, you know, the majority leader is, if it's a 50-50 tie and Kamala Harris is breaking the ties, then, you know, then Chuck Schumer is majority leader and the Democrats will be chairing all the relevant committees. If uh, it's a 52 or 51 Republican seat uh, majority with, you know, 48 or 49 Democrats, that means the Republicans will be chairing all the committees and Mitch McConnell will continue to rule the Senate atop a throne of skulls, um, <laughs> which if you're a Republican, that's, that's, you're pretty comfortable with that. So, you know, look, Manchin is, is pretty clear on this. I wouldn't mind hearing a statement along these lines from Kirsten Cinema, maybe one or two other Democrats who've been kind of skeptical of going along with this, but uh, one more indicator that the most wild-eyed fantasies of Democratic liberals and progressives probably will not come to fruition, at least for the next two years, uh, even with uh, Biden likely winning the presidency. 
No, that's a good point. And you've also made a good point that uh, the Republicans still need to show up in Georgia, because even though Manchin might not kill the filibuster, Democrats with a vice president, Harris, most likely, um, would control the agenda. And that is also a huge deal. And you would only need to pick off a couple of Republicans, possibly for some very bad ideas. If cocaine Mitch is running the floor, uh, those issues never even get to a vote. And so uh, that's kind of where we are right now, playing a lot of defense if Republicans control the Senate, but uh, sometimes defense wins championships, so uh, so we'll see. But uh, Joe Manchin also saying he does not support Medicare for all, saying we can't even afford Medicare for some. Not sure what that means for him on the public option, since technically that's not ending private insurance, but a lot of uh, good, uh, smart people on the right think that's the slippery slope to ending it, because the government could obviously undersell all the private companies. So, uh, Jim? Uh, not only the filibuster dying, but possibly some uh, crazy legislative ideas as well. Who knows what the Green New Deal has? But, uh, you know, if, if Joe Manchin took a shotgun to cap and trade a decade ago, he might do the same to uh, the Green New Deal. We can only hope. Here's hoping. <laughs> Guy from a coal state? Yeah, good shot. <laughs> Literally a good shot. He put it right through that uh, cap and trade bill uh, back in the day. All right. And by the way, he was not there when uh, Obamacare was passed. That was uh, Robert Byrd. Doesn't seem like a whole decade ago, but uh, it is. All right, on to uh, the Jordan Harbinger Show, who's our sponsor today. Uh, you're going to need some critical thinking heading into this uh, next couple of years in the political landscape in Washington and beyond. And that's what the Jordan Harbinger Show is all about. Apple named it one of its best of 2018, and the program is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so that you can get a sense of how the world actually works and then come to your own conclusions about what's happening. There really is an episode for everyone, no matter what you're into. It's not just about politics. It's not just about anything. They go into a lot of different areas. The show covers uh, stories, even things like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of people's personalities. You won't find just one set of viewpoints on Jordan's show. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. You'll find something you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. So go to jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, time for the double-barreled bad martinis here now, Jim. And uh, we have talked uh, a lot, of course, in the past week about the uh, Trump legal challenges coming in a number of states. Uh, you have explained why, given the, the margins and other factors, that we're unlikely to see a lot of things change uh, via the courts. But uh, uh, they're going to go through the process, and we'll see what actually happens. But the left has decided that uh, anyone supporting this effort basically needs to be ostracized. Uh, Evan McMullen, who I know a lot of folks on the right have a lot of warm and fuzzy feelings for, uh, tweeted this out last Thursday, mind you. We should keep and publish a list of everyone who assists Trump's frivolous and dangerous attacks on the election. Name and shame forever. The next day... AOC gets on board. Is anyone archiving these Trump sycophants for when they try to downplay or deny their complicity in the future? I foresee decent probability of many deleted tweets, writings, photos in the future. Uh, she's not the only one looking for a list, though. Jennifer Rubin over at the Washington Post, until only recently pretending she was a conservative. Quote, 
any Republican now promoting rejection of an election or calling to not follow the will of voters or making baseless allegations of fraud should never serve an office, join a corporate board, find a faculty position, or be accepted into polite society. We have a list. And Jim, as we all know, when the left has lists, nothing bad ever happens. You know, Greg, nothing says fighting fascism by putting together long lists of people who need to be punished for their political dissent. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, that's fascism. It's not anti-fascism. Uh, look, yeah, I, I saw this and I started thinking about a couple, a couple weeks before the election, you heard some Democrats, uh, including I think it was Robert Reich, calling for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. When you see Democrats calling for this regarding President Trump, besides the fact that it's rather offensive that this, you know, I don't think the thing, sorts of things that are called upon for, you know, apartheid era South Africa or other dictatorial, brutal, violent regimes uh, really applies to the Trump administration. But even if you, they do, even if you do think it's necessary, it kind of means you haven't really studied how it actually worked in places like South Africa. Among them, like one of the aspects is that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission Offered amnesty. If you came forward and talked about crimes committed by the regime during the apartheid era, there was a chance the Truth and Reconciliation Commission would give you amnesty, no punishment for it. They did uh, offer amnesty in a bunch of cases, other cases they did not. Then those people went to trial. Not everybody got convicted. There were a bunch of high profile trials and people who a lot of people believed had committed terrible acts during the apartheid years in South Africa walked away uh, not guilty, determined by a jury. Um, the other big aspect of that whole Truth and Reconciliation Commission was that second word, reconciliation. They made very clear this was for the historical record. This was not about punishing every last person who had a role in this. And part of it meant that the, the, the whole country had to be willing to move on from some really horrible and brutal acts. They had to say, you know what? We cannot change the past. We can only study it. We can only put together as complete a record as possible so that future generations can learn from this. And then we have to move on. We can't sit around knowing, uh, as they pointed out, in some cases, people knew the person who had, you know, uh, hauled their brother into jail and the brother never came out in a situation like that. They had to learn to forgive. Not hearing anything about forgiveness in this. In fact, you know, what's very clear is that you know, a lot of liberals don't want a truth and reconciliation commission. They want a truth and punishment commission. They want that. If you want to guys want to go down that road, you can do that. But keep in mind that there were 71 and a half million people who voted for Donald Trump. There are 75 million people who voted for Joe Biden. And we've got to figure out a way to move forward together. We've got to figure out some way to live with each other because you're, both sides are too big to, to oppress the other. And the question is, well, how do you want to do this? Joe Biden gave a very nice victory speech full of talk of unity, full of giving each other a chance. I, I liked a lot of it. Now, here's the thing, liberals. Biden just talked about this. Now you've got to practice it. Now you've got to show it. Now you've got to walk the walk as addition to talking the talk because you can't say it's time for us to come together and it's time for us to punish people who've supported the other guy. doesn't work that way, liberals. No, not at all. There is a uh, Trump accountability project, uh, Jim. I just noticed a response to AOC's tweet uh, that says, Trump officials have already begun the effort to hide their records. We will not let that happen. Uh, and if you're a software engineer who can otherwise help us archive a large number of Trump campaign slash administration staffer tweets DM us. So uh, I don't know how serious that effort is, but uh, there are insane people out there and they are uh, perhaps pursuing this a little bit further. But uh, yeah, uh, you saw a few folks, uh, lefties uh, on Twitter and elsewhere after the Biden speech saying, yes, it's time to heal. And then when uh, some folks on the right are still 
suggesting that there's more to investigate with the election or you guys didn't uh, give us a chance four years ago or whatever, whatever it was. Well, that's just it. We're not, uh, th this is never going to work. Uh, there, there can be no reconciliation here, no unity. So that lasted a few hours. By reconciliation, we meant obedience. <laughs> Well, yeah, unity means that uh, we can get along as long as you agree with what we want to do. That's generally how unity in Washington works. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter, host of the Sarah Carter Podcast. Everywhere you look these days, we're seeing an aggressive effort to destroy what made America great, tearing down our history, attacking our freedoms, and canceling any person who dares to cross the progressive speech police. We cannot stand by and let this happen. It's time for the silent majority to become the unsilent majority. Join me on the Sarah Carter Podcast. Subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, on to our second uh, bad martini and our third of the day. Uh, yesterday, uh, Joe Biden on stage talking about his COVID task force. He said that was going to be the, one of the first things he put together, and he started naming people, speaking of lists, but this is not nearly as nefarious of a list. He's just naming people who's going to be on his coronavirus task force. But one of the names certainly gives you some chills because it's Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel. Uh, that name sounds familiar. We've certainly talked about him in the past. He was one of the architects of Obamacare, and he's the brother of Rahm Emanuel, who was uh, President Obama's initial chief of staff, a uh, two-term mayor of Chicago, unsuccessfully, I might add, uh, was in Congress way back when. But uh, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel uh, is also famous for writing an essay to talk about one of his long-held beliefs that uh, once you're 75, you've pretty much outlived your usefulness. He wrote an essay in The Atlantic back in 2014 entitled, Why I Hope to Die at 75, arguing, quote, that by 75, creativity, originality, and productivity are pretty much gone for the vast, vast majority of us. Uh, and he says, essentially, we've gotten really good at extending the lives of old people and haven't spent as much time and money as we should on uh, helping the health of younger people who, of course, have uh, more ability to be productive members of societies. And so you've got folks like Senator Tom Cotton reacting to this decision by Biden saying, a member of Biden's new coronavirus task force is a lockdown enthusiast who has written that living past 75 isn't worth it. Americans want our country opened up, not creepy bioethicists who enjoy playing God. So Jim, uh, given that COVID kind of uh, seems to be uh, most uh, virulent against the elderly. I'm not sure the guy who thinks you're pretty much uh, on borrowed time and not that useful anymore once you hit 75 is the guy you want to see on this thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, this was a 2014 essay. I've never seen any indication that Emmanuel changed his mind. I'd really like to get back to him when he's about 74 and see if he's, you know, if all of a sudden that deadline feels a lot, uh, feels a lot more pressing and all of a sudden maybe he's rethought some things. Um, look, it's not just that... Uh, a lot of people said, oh, well, he's just calling it, saying this is what he wants for himself. He's not advocating it for, for other people. Well, look, if you have a personal viewpoint and you think it's totally personal and you keep it to yourself, that's one thing. You don't write a long essay in The Atlantic because you want this idea only for yourself and you don't want this idea to spread. Um, you write an essay like that because you want this idea to get some purchase in the mainstream and to spread the idea to others. Um, and look, I, you know, when the, when the guy writes... Here's a simple truth that many of us seem to resist. Living too long is also a loss. It renders many of us, if not disabled, then faltering and declining, a state that may not be worse than death, but is nonetheless deprived. Is this guy you want in charge trying to save all the senior citizens from coronavirus? 
this, 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 this is, you know, look, we can have lengthy discussions about end of life care uh, and hospice care and palliative care and how much steps should be taken to save someone's life when they are at a certain age and when the prognosis is looking very grim. But the world has lots of people who are in their late 70s or in their 80s or even if they're 90s or you know, people who live to be 100 who are happy with their lives. There's a little bit of a Logan's Run vibe to uh, Emmanuel's essay here. This idea that you know, at 75, that's enough and dying at 75 will not be a tragedy. Well, we're trying to save a lot of people who are 75 years or older in this pandemic right now. And it's just a very strange choice on the part of Biden because he's not an immunologist. He's not specializing in uh, viruses or, or anything like that. I think you kind of feel like he's just on there because he's a well-known doctor who's affiliated with the Democratic Party. It's a little, it's very cookie cutter. It's very almost like, ah, what doctors do we know that, that, that he ended up on this? And oh, by the way, there are only like seven or eight of them. This was not a huge list of doctors. And he was, you know, just one of many that were thrown in. So um, a little bit unnerving. Every now and then I get the feeling that the Biden crew is kind of, I'm getting that Belushi and Blues Brothers vibe. We're getting the band back together. Um, I'm not really sure why he's on this list, and I've not seen anybody else raise these issues regarding him. Uh, shockingly, the mainstream media is not interested in this, but uh, I wrote about it in the corner, and you can read about it there. Now, just to be clear, Ezekiel Emanuel doesn't necessarily want to go around to your house once you turn 75 and uh, take you out. But, uh, as far he, as we know. <laughs> but uh, he doesn't want to spend a lot of money on you when you do get sick. And of course, people over 75, they never rack up medical bills, Jim. So, uh, yeah. Shockingly, the most uh, medical effort and expenditures to prevent someone from dying happen right before they die. <laughs> Who could have seen that coming? Yeah. Yeah. So this is the guy that also helped to create the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which was graciously killed by uh, Republicans and uh, during the Trump administration. And so, uh, Jim, uh, not necessarily the guy you want running a lot of policy, but uh, this is also uh, the guy who worked for President Obama, who said that his own grandmother shouldn't have gotten a new hip in her 80s because, you know, just give her some pain pills. What's the point? <laughs> That's how we know he's not a compassionate conservative, Greg. <laughs> George W. Bush would give you two hips, even a third. He's a spare. You never know. Oh, the party of empathy. Yeah, they're all over this one. So, uh, Jim, uh, good luck to you. Uh, good luck to all the coronavirus patients out there with Zeke Emanuel on the case. Uh, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us. Don't forget about the Jordan Harbinger Show, jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe. Also, please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch Podcast. We're extremely grateful for those five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Also, get us on those home devices. You just have to say, play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Have a great Tuesday, and join us on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.